Well, we're going to be in the kitchen with Martha this morning, not Marty. <laughs> what an incredible privilege, hey. After 50 years of uh, doing this, I realize someday it'll come to an end. I won't be preaching, and uh, I'm going to miss that. You know what else I miss? I miss sitting here with you week in and week out and hearing the word faithfully taught. What a privilege. What a privilege. I recently had the privilege of opening God's word for eight consecutive Sundays at our free church in Sycamore, Illinois. Their pastor, Jeff Gannett, was on sabbatical, and before he left, he assigned me a portion from the Gospel of Luke to preach in his absence, and included in the portion he assigned to me was our text for this morning, Luke 10, 38 through 42. I encourage you to follow along, whatever vehicle you use for that purpose. These five verses appear on the pages of Holy Writ without so much as a word of introduction, and they end without a hint of where Luke is about to take us next in his account of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. And yet the storyline in these five verses is among the most remembered and most loved in Luke's entire gospel. No doubt this is because its message is so simple and so straightforward. Unfortunately, I think that's the same reason why we're tempted to think of this story as a cute little spiritual ditty, lacking any real substance. After all, the setting is far from dramatic. Instead of the usual multitudes who gathered to hear him teach on the hillsides of Judea or the temple courts of Jerusalem, we have a cast of only three, Jesus and two sisters, about to sit down for what appears to be a private lunch. Even the twelve are absent, apparently sent ahead by Jesus so he might have a private audience with Martha and Mary. Even their brother Lazarus, who was a dear friend of Jesus, appears to have been absent on this occasion. Nor can we find the significance of this event in the content of Jesus' teaching. Because whatever wisdom he was imparting to the sisters, not a single word of it is recorded in Luke's gospel. Add to this the fact that there is no miracle, no healing, and no new teaching with authority recorded in these verses, and we might be tempted to view this account as little more than filler, just a bridge between more thoughtful teachings preceding and following it. But then we know better than that, don't we? The doctrine of inspiration hardly allows for the Holy Spirit originating fluff or the occasional insertion of nifty but meaningless little stories told by human authors. So what's the attraction of this little vignette? Why is it that untold thousands of sermons have been preached on this passage? And what important truth can you and I hope to glean from it this morning? Well, the importance of this passage is simply this. What it lacks in dramatic proclamation, new authoritative teaching, or mind-boggling miracle, it makes up for in its quiet, intimate disclosure of what a disciple's personal relationship with our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ can and should look like. 
Furthermore, it's full of wisdom concerning how you and I can spend our time, our one-on-one time with Him. And with that in mind, I want us to consider together what our Lord, in concert with Martha and Mary, has to teach us on this subject. I believe every true child of God, every disciple of Jesus Christ, knows from Scripture and from personal experience that our fellowship with our Savior is not something that awaits our arrival in heaven. It begins even here on earth. All Scripture invites, even encourages us as believers to fellowship with our Lord during our days here on this earth. And to encourage this practice, Jesus has sent His Holy Spirit to live within us and has promised that He will abide with us moment by moment on this earthly journey. But because we are physical as well as spiritual beings, it is sometimes helpful to think of our fellowship with Him in physical terms. And our text for today will help us to do just that. In verse 38 of Luke 10, we read, As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village, by the way, that village was Bethany, where, where um, a, a woman named Martha opened her home to him. The Greek, hupodexomai, means simply to receive, to entertain, to welcome. It's the same word, incidentally, used in James 2.25 to describe the actions of Rahab when she invited the Hebrew spies into her home. And we're told in that verse that she was considered righteous for so doing. So, with this simple yet righteous action, Martha introduces us to the first of seven considerations each one of us should keep in mind when contemplating how we wish to spend our time with Jesus. We should then begin by introducing him into our homes. By the way, this was not the first or the only time that Martha, Mary, and their brother Lazarus welcomed Jesus into their home. We know of at least two other occasions, one recorded in John 11 on the occasion of Lazarus' death, and another in Matthew 26 during the Passover, uh, only several days before our Lord's crucifixion. Three of the four gospel writers recount occasions when Martha and Mary invited Jesus into their home. And scholars are unanimous in their conclusion that Jesus was a frequent visitor in the home of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Growing up in a godly Quaker home in mid-Ohio, I learned early that Jesus was present with us wherever we were. But that did not keep mom and dad from welcoming him into our home as many days and as many ways as they could. From the Bible stories that mom read to me and my sisters and the prayers that punctuated our days and accompanied our bedtime rituals to the pictures that hung on the walls throughout our house and the music that wafted from our old Zenith record player to dad's supper time accounts of customers he'd prayed with that day on his milk route. Jesus was welcome in every room and every event that took place in our home. And as a result of this, my sisters and I grew up believing that spending time with Jesus was the normative practice of all Christians. 
It wasn't until we were a little older and began to visit in the homes of some of our friends from church that we realized this wasn't always the case. In many of these homes, there was little evidence that Jesus had ever been welcomed there. There was nothing in their reading material or music, nothing in their conversation other than a 10-second prayer before supper to suggest that Jesus had ever been welcomed into their homes. These were people I knew. Many of them were leaders in our local church. But where was Jesus in their homes, in their daily activities? Let me say a word to parents and grandparents right now, if I may. I know your little ones won't always thank you for inviting Jesus to the party. But trust me, by doing so, you are doing them a great service. You'll be modeling how easy, how right it is to take Jesus with them wherever they go. You'll be teaching them that spending time with Jesus is as easy, as natural as inviting him into their everyday experiences. A second consideration when thinking about how to spend our time with Jesus follows directly from the first, and it's this. Welcome him into your schedule. It was Martha who invited Jesus into their home, but it was Mary who invited him into her schedule. Because while Martha busied herself in the kitchen, Mary sat at Jesus' feet. I had to smile as I read this account because it reminded me of a couple in our university church some years ago. This couple frequently invited us into their home for supper. And once there, the wife would engage us in conversation, but the husband would disappear until he was called for supper. And then following supper, he would excuse himself again and disappear once again. I always figured that apparently he wanted us, and he wanted me particularly as the pastor, to be in his house, but he couldn't make time to include us in his busy schedule. I can't, can't help but wonder how many folks invite Jesus into their lives, would like to have him in their pocket for a rainy day, but have no time to include him in their busy schedules. Not so merry. Here and once again in the John 12 account of Jesus' evening spent in the home of Martha and Mary, Mary has time. She makes time to fit Jesus into her schedule. You may recall it was on that evening that she sat at his feet and anointed him with precious perfume. Now note, there can be no question about Martha's love for Jesus. It was this love for him that motivated her, her invitation in the first place and her service preparing a meal for him. But it was Mary who fit him into her personal schedule. It was Mary who stepped aside from her usual pattern of activity to welcome him into her inner life. And I must admit that over the years, I have frequently been amazed by how many who love him find little or no time to fit him into their schedules. A third consideration when deciding how to spend your time with Jesus is the practice of listening. In verse 39 we read, Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. 
It's frequently pointed out by commentators that this is the posture taken by a pupil or a disciple who is receiving instruction from his teacher. But the word in the Greek here is not the word typically used for teaching in the doctrinal sense. It's less formal. It suggests a conversational tone. What a rare privilege. Can you imagine it? To sit at Jesus' feet in this quiet, intimate setting, perhaps even a one-on-one setting, and listen to him as he talked of his work and his journey just ended, or perhaps of the work that he still had before him. It's hard to imagine that anyone who had the opportunity to be one-on-one with Jesus would be so foolish as to fill these precious moments with chatter rather than to be still and listen to him. And yet it happens all the time. Dare I say it? Just reflect on your last time alone with Jesus. Who was doing the listening? Who was doing the talking? Was it at least a dialogue? One notable example of our tendency to fill our moments alone with Jesus with our chatter is recorded in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, just a page or two from this one, verse 33 and following. Many of you will remember the occasion. Jesus had invited Peter, James, and John to join him on a mountaintop for a time of prayer, some incredible one-on-one time with Jesus, or one-on-three. And as Jesus was praying, we read that his appearance became like that of a heavenly being, bright as a flash of lightning. And next, Moses and Elijah appeared with him in glorious splendor. What a moment to be in the presence of Jesus glorified. And Peter listened in rapt attention. No, he didn't. The text says, not knowing what to say, That'd be a good time to shut up, wouldn't it? Not knowing what to say, he muttered something about erecting a shrine here. Oh, Master, it's good for us to be here. He had that right. Let me put up three shelters for you, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And that's where the text says he didn't know what he was saying. But that didn't keep him from filling that sacred moment with chatter. And I love the text here. While he was still talking, don't tend to think of the Holy Spirit as an interrupter, but he was on this occasion. While Peter was still talking, beating his gums, a voice from heaven said, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Every time I read this account, I'm reminded of the words found in Psalm 46.10. Be still, be silent, and know that I am God. I am also reminded of an occasion during my seminary years when I had been privileged to preach in chapel, and I took my text, and I wanted to fill every moment, and I preached hard and long and fast. And when I was done, one of my professors came to me. Thank you, he said, for opening the word. Just one thing, he said, never forget, the Spirit of God speaks in silence. I can't help wondering what Peter might have learned about his Lord if he had stopped talking that day and listened. I wonder what we might learn about our Lord if in our times alone with him we talked less and listened more. Question for you. Do you remember the last time you were keenly aware of God's presence? 
The last time you just really sensed his nearness. The last time you had sweet fellowship with your Savior. What were you doing in that moment? Were you talking? Or were you listening? A fourth consideration to take into account when we're spending time with Jesus is this. Remove any and everything that might keep you from giving him your full attention. In verse 40 we read, But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. Oh, they had to be made. <laughs> while Martha, or excuse me, while Mary sat at Jesus' feet, focused on his words, Martha was distracted, most of our translations say, literally dragged about, pulled one way and then another by all the preparations that had to be done. In the following verse, verse 41, Jesus describes Martha as worried or anxious. And once again, this word means pulled in many directions. It's the way we feel when we're anxious, isn't it? We feel pulled in many directions. Don't get the wrong idea. It wasn't that Mary wanted to spend time with Jesus, but Martha didn't. No, both women wanted to spend time with him. But Mary focused her attention on his presence, his words, his company, while Martha got caught up in all the details. Jesus' response to Martha tells us all we need to know about her love for him and his love for her. Martha, Martha, he begins. Nearly all the translators say, this is intended as a very tender address. And then he goes on to make it clear that he understands her frustration as though to say, I know that you're worried and upset about many things. I know that. But in so doing, he also names her mistake. And that was that in her many distractions, she had lost sight of the one truly important thing. It's almost as though he says to her, Martha, your list of things to be done is keeping you from the very thing you long for. Time with me. Are you a list maker? Boy, I am. Most mornings I get up, we have a, a chalkboard, a little chalkboard in the living room, and uh, I'll start and I'll just jot down the things we're going to do today. And then Sherry and I, we cross them off as we do them. We oh, we did that one. Are you a list maker? Many of us are. If you're a list maker, you'll have no problem identifying with Martha's dilemma. In the living room is Jesus. Big time. In the kitchen is a long list of things that must be tended to if they're to have lunch. Now, mind you, there is no Grubhub. <laughs> and there is no instant falafel in the pantry. There's no microwave to speed up the process. No servants to do the work for her, we may assume. And as a result, she is worried and she's pulled apart. And she, well, we could even say she has a right to be distracted. And in this moment of frustration, she does the one thing she can think to do. She leaves what has now become a mess in the kitchen, stands before Jesus, and appeals her case. 
Lord, she says, verse 40, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha's choice of words tells exactly how she feels. The word help means to take hold of one's end. This is, she's saying to Jesus, a two-person job. Some jobs around your house you just can't get done. Just one of you. Occasionally I'll call my son and say to him, I know it's an hour to get out here, but listen, I got some things to do that I just can't do, but I need somebody on the other end. I can't get this done. And that's what, that's what Martha was saying. Lord, tell her this is a two-person job. I need somebody to pick up the other end, carry her weight. Tell her to help me. And this brings us directly to a fifth consideration when planning to spend time with Jesus. Don't use others as an excuse for not giving him your full attention. Not only has Martha lost sight of her greater priority, her relationship with the Lord Jesus, she has also found the perfect excuse for not making time to sit at his feet and listen. Verse 40, my sister has left me to do the work by myself. Don't you feel sorry for me, Jesus? No matter what season of life we may find ourselves in, there is always somebody to blame for our failure to make time for Jesus. My friends expect me to be available to them whenever they call. The baby requires my constant attention. Indeed, babies do require attention. My boss keeps me so busy by the time I get home, the only thing I want to do is sleep. The kids, the kids, well, they're teens now, and there's no end of taxiing them from one event to the next. I can hardly wait till one of them gets old enough to get a license. Trust me, Martha was not the only one who faced this dilemma. Did you know that even, maybe especially, pastors face this dilemma? On a daily basis, there are the members of the congregation who outnumber them Several hundred to one. There's their staff, which are a great source of help, but also need their time and attention and discipling and development. There are needy families in the community who come seeking help. And then there's their own wife and children and their parents, probably, and if they do get an hour free, they know exactly what to do with it. They need to invest it in preparing the sermon for Sunday's, Sunday services. And here's the thing. It's a lot easier to blame others for keeping us from spending our time with Jesus than it is to just spend our time with Jesus. But in the end, blaming others won't buy you what you need and what you really want. And you know what that is. More precious time with Jesus. A sixth consideration went, by the way, there, did you notice when you came in this morning, you probably said immediately, if you didn't know it before, oh, Pastor Jay's not preaching this morning. There are seven points at any rate. Okay, the sixth <laughs> consideration when planning to spend time with Jesus is as follows. Keep in mind that next to your relationship with him, nothing really matters. Note what I didn't say. Note what Jesus didn't say. We didn't say nothing else matters. 
Jesus didn't say, paying your bills doesn't matter. Jesus didn't say, getting meals around doesn't matter. Jesus didn't say paying your taxes doesn't matter. He didn't say taking time to keep yourself clean doesn't matter. He didn't say doing your homework doesn't matter. He didn't say taking time to help others out doesn't matter. Of course these things matter, and so do a thousand more. But next to your relationship with him, nothing else really matters. Verse 42, few things are needed. Few things are necessary, he says. Indeed, only one. The New Living Translation says there's, only, there's really only one thing worth being concerned about. Let me explain it like this. Jesus is not saying, put me at the top of your list of things to do. Make me numero uno. Make me your number one priority. That's always troubled me. That's always bothered me, this idea that we should make a list and then pen Jesus' name in at the top. He is saying, there's your relationship with me, and then there's your list. I don't want to be at the top of your list. I don't want to be your top priority. I want to stand alone. I want to be exclusive. I want to be singular. I don't want any competitors. Haven't I told you I'm a jealous God? There's me, and then there's your list. When Sherry and I moved to Southern California a number of years ago, <laughs> 50 years ago, to take up our first pastor, and I determined that I would not be one of those pastors who lost sight of his wife and his family in the busyness of his pastoral work. I would, God helping me, not be one of those men. So at the beginning of each week, I would sit down and write Sherry into my schedule. And just to make sure I didn't forget her, I put her on my to-do list. Yeah. Uh-oh is right. And at some level, that seemed to work for us. Until one day, Sherry met me at the door when I came home with a daily schedule in her hand. She said, you forgot this today. By the way, I see I made it onto your list. And that was the day I discovered Sherry didn't want to be on my list of things to do. She didn't even want to be on the top of my list. She wanted to stand alone in my affections, my commitments, my schedule. Jesus says, when planning to spend time with me, remember there's me and then there's everything else. Finally, when considering how to spend your time with Jesus, remember this. Jesus understands you like no one else does. Say, what does that have to do with anything? Listen. Who is it that really gets you? I recently heard a young woman explaining why she'd, had, why she'd chosen a certain young man from, from a number of other potential suitors. She said, I chose him because he gets me. He really gets me. Who is it that really gets you? Who is it that understands you at a level that goes deeper 
than the rest of your family and friends? Is it a sibling? Is it your BFF? Is it a counselor, a spouse, a husband, a wife, a mom, a dad? What's it like to spend time with that person? It can be a little intimidating, right? But it's also very freeing because there's no need for excuses or lengthy explanations. There's nothing you can't say. There's no emotion you can't display, no secret you can't share. Jesus was that special person for Mary. And listen to me, he's that special person for you. He gets you at a level nobody else does. Even Martha, Mary's sister, didn't get her. She thought she was being thoughtless and selfish when instead of joining her in the kitchen, she sat at Jesus' feet and she had to come to Jesus and say, tell her to get out here and help me. Martha didn't get her. Nor did Jesus' disciples get Mary. When on another occasion, recorded in Matthew 26, she anointed Jesus' head and feet with costly ointment and wiped them with her hair, and they said, what a neat, what a neat uh, little way of demonstrating love. No, they didn't. They said, what is wrong with that woman? What a waste. What an emotional basket case this woman is. But what no one else understood about her actions, not even Christ's disciples, Jesus understood. What did he say? He said, let her alone. Don't bother her. She has done a beautiful thing. She sees, gentlemen, what you yourselves cannot see. She sees my death and resurrection looming large just before us. Listen, he tells them. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her, and so it has been and so this very day. It's being remembered in her name. And with these words, Jesus vindicated her. With these words, he said, nobody else may get you, Mary, but I get you. So, when you're deciding how to spend your time with Jesus, whether or not you can fit him into your schedule, remember this. Jesus gets you like nobody else. Well, there you have it. Seven considerations to keep in mind when you're responding or when you're, um, when you're spending time with Jesus. How much time do I have? I need about four minutes. Do I have four minutes? Because I'm going to talk to the men for a minute. As I close, I want, I want to say a word to the men here today. So some of you who said, yes, you have time, suddenly said, no, I don't think you have time. <laughs> I think I hear my mother calling me now. Especially I want to talk to, to, to possibly a few men who are thinking, well, Marty, that's a sweet little story for widow women and folks who are touchy-feely, but I'm a more meat and potatoes kind of guy. I'm into hardcore theology. My heroes in the faith are men like the late R.C. Sproul. Good, you've made a wise choice. He's one of my favorite theologians. His doctrinal instruction is second to none in our day, I believe. 
But it may surprise you to know that you've also chosen an exemplary model for your devotional life. May I refer you to the opening words of his perhaps best-known book, The Holiness of God. This is Sprawl speaking from his early years as a student. I was compelled to leave the room. A deep, undeniable summons disturbed my sleep. Something holy was calling me. The summons became stronger, more urgent, impossible to ignore, and a burst of wakefulness made me jerk upright and swing my legs over the side of the bed and onto the floor. Sleep vanished in that instant, and my body sprang into resolute action. Within seconds, I was dressed and on my way out of my college room. The night air was cold, turning the snow of the morning into a hard, crusted blanket. I felt the crunch under my feet as I walked toward the center of campus. The chapel was in the shadow of Old Main Tower, and the door was made of heavy oak with a Gothic arch. I swung it open, entered the narthex. The door fell shut behind me with a clanging sound that reverberated from the stone walls of the nave. The echo startled me. It was a strange contrast to the sounds of daily chapel services where the opening and closing of the doors was muffled by the sounds of students shuffling to their assigned places. Now the sound of the door was amplified into the void of midnight. And I waited for a moment in the narthex, allowing my eyes a second to adjust to the darkness. I felt a majestic sense of space accented by the vaulted arches of the ceiling. They seemed to draw my soul upward, a sense of height that evoked a feeling of a giant hand reaching down to pick me up. I moved slowly and deliberately toward the chancel steps. Each step sounded down the center aisle as I reached the carpet-covered chancel. And there, there I sank to my knees. I had reached my destination. I was ready to meet the source of the summons that had disturbed my rest. I was in a posture of prayer, but I had nothing to say. I knelt there quietly, allowing the sense of the presence of a holy God to fill me. The beat of my heart was telltale, a thump, thump against my chest. And an icy chill started at the base of my spine and crept up my neck. Fear swept over me. I fought the impulse to run from the foreboding presence that gripped me. The terror passed. But soon it was followed by another wave. This wave was different. It was a flooding of my soul of unspeakable peace. A peace that brought instant rest and repose to my troubled spirit. And at once... I was comfortable. I wanted to linger there, to say nothing, to do nothing, simply to bask in the presence of God. That moment was life transforming. Something deep in my spirit was being settled once for all. I was alone with God, a holy God, an awesome God. A God who could fill me with terror in one second and with peace in the next. And I knew in that hour that I had tasted of the Holy Grail. A new thirst was born within me that would never be fully satisfied in this world. 
And I resolved to learn more, to pursue this God who lived in dark Gothic cathedrals and who invaded my dormitory room to rouse me from complacent slumber. A new thirst was born within me that could never be satisfied in this world. I reserved to learn more. You may well ask, what's your point, Marty? Just this. The thirst of which R.C. Sproul writes so movingly in this passage is a thirst known not only by little girls and touchy-feely widows, but by every person, man, woman, teen, and child, who has been born of the Spirit of God. And this thirst is satisfied only as we sit in silence at his feet and listen to his words. Spirit of God, we are busy people. We are distracted people. All of that said, we love you. And we can honestly say that the thing we long for most is your presence in our lives. So help us to be wise and to pursue your presence, your holiness, your awesomeness in our lives day by day.